This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We are going to be unpacking IPOs, initial public offerings, yes. with one of the best in the business from one of our favorite funds in the business. Yes. So I'm very excited to get stuck into this episode. Absolutely. It is our pleasure to welcome Tom Cowan to the show. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we've got Tom on to, as Alex said, unpack all there is to know about the IPO process from the point of view of our TDM uh, Growth Partners. So Tom is co-founder and member of the investment team at TDM Growth Partners. Alongside his fellow partners, Hamish Corlett and Ben Giz, Tom has grown TDM from 1 million to over a billion in assets under management. So pretty impressive. Over the years, Thomas sat on a number of several ASX-listed companies and was the youngest chairman of an ASX 200 company. So, a lot to unpack there, Tom. But firstly, can you start us off by telling us a bit about TDM? Yeah, I'd love to. So, TDM's been going 15 years and really what we're about is investing around the world in both public and private businesses try and find those best management teams with those businesses with amazing growth profiles and own them for long term, really be a business owner. And in fact, if you look at what we do, you know, I think on average for 40% of our portfolio, we've owned business for 10 years. So when I say long term, I mean long term. When you think about what we do, I mentioned it before, being a business owner is is absolutely fundamental. Thinking and behaving like a business owner and taking that long-term perspective. And the other thing that is super important to us, which I think doesn't get played out enough for most investors, is people and culture. We're obsessed around finding the right people to run those businesses, make sure we're aligned. And when you found the right people, special people do special things. And that's what we've found time and time again. Whenever we've made mistakes, it's been around the people. So they're really some of the, the key things that we look to, look to and, and obsess about, so to speak. 
So, Tom, for our listeners who haven't perhaps joined the dots, we did have your brother, Ed Cowan, on the show. Great interview talking about, you know, everything that TDM has to offer and and a bit more about your investing process. So, if you haven't listened to that episode, we suggest going and listening to that again. Yeah, no, you can get much more details there about TDM in terms of how we approach things. It was great to have Ed on the show. I actually... I. sort of lost my name for about five years there uh, when he was playing cricket for Australia and was just introduced at board meetings or other meetings as Ed Count's brother. And as I like to say, now I'm Ed Count's boss. So. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We'll go and check that out. It was a great episode. Now, Tom, one of the reasons we're particularly excited for this episode is we're going to be talking about IPOs, but we're not just going to be talking about them in abstract terms. You've helped some pretty notable companies through the IPO process. Pacific Smiles, Baby Bunting, Tyro Payments. So we're keen to unpack the IPO process and talk about the experiences that you've had with some of these companies that a lot of people are aware of. Bryce in particular is the number one fan of Baby Bunting in Australia. Anyone can challenge him on that. He's number one. (laughs) Number one ticket holder. (laughs) I guess we want to approach it with a bit of a timeline structure. There's a lot of work that goes in before the stocks start start trading on the ASX. So to begin with, how far out from actually listing on an exchange does a company begin preparing for an IPO? We always say it's a two-year process to get ready for IPO. A lot of people that you see looking to list a business do that far quicker. But in our view, to make sure you're IPO ready and that you are going to be successful as a public company, we think it's a a lot of work over two years to make sure you're up here already. In that two-year period, we've sort of broken it up into the 24 months out to six months out period and then six months to go live period. So if we start with the, uh, at the beginning, 24 months out, company's growing, it's got good prospects, it decides that it wants to go public. What are some of the things that a company and company executives need to start thinking about and need to start doing to prepare for the IPO? So you've really got to look at a number of aspects of a business. You know, we always start at the top. So ensuring that you have the right board with the right chairman and that you're ready to have a very successful board functioning well is definitely a, a good place to start. And obviously the management team is the most important. So having, making sure you've got the right CEO with the right executive team. So there are two key areas that we spend a lot of time on to make sure that we, when, when you think about the business um, from that particular point in time and you want to grow at multiples over many years from there, that you've got the right team to help scale the business from that particular point. And often, particularly with, with both board and management team, the people that were successful in the first part of the journey aren't necessarily the people that are successful for the journey as a public company and making sure you've you've got that team. There's also a lot of effort around systems, process, and IT, where you want to make sure that the business is humming from a back office perspective before you embark on the on the IPO process. Tom, I want to um, pick up on what you mentioned there about the board and the executive team. To me, that's somewhat surprising. You know, you think about you build a company to sort of two, three hundred million revenue and then uh, you're going to come in and say, actually, your board and exec are not great. Is that often the case when this sort of thing happens for an IPO? And what are you exactly looking for in the CEO or the board or the exec team to sort of comfort you that going forward, they are the right people? So each business is obviously different. I would say most businesses probably don't actually have a board Yeah, right. Uh, at that particular point in time as a private business. What we've found 
the most successful businesses we've been associated with do have a board and that they've actually already thought about that prior to us investing. But ensuring that that is the right board for the next stage is, is certainly a very important part of the process. In terms of the management team, once again, it does, you know, it depends on the specifics. I'm not saying you don't have the management team. I would say it is a reasonably common occurrence that there will be new members to the executive team in that period to ensure that you've got the right complete team to scale to many times your size. So obviously the ideal is you have the an awesome board and an awesome management team, but that's, I would say, a very a rare instance. If we can dig into that a little bit more, I'm interested to know what the underlying cause or like what the underlying reason for that is and, and what actually changes when a company goes public. Because I think for a lot of people thinking about IPOs, it's just a point in time where the shares move from privately owned to publicly owned, but the operation of the business doesn't really change. But that's obviously not the case if these you know, big changes need to happen and this whole process needs to go through. So what's actually changing for the company itself? No, I'd actually say the way you described it is the way we think about it. So it's actually not driven by the IPO. It's driven by what will help take the business to the next stage. So the fact is, you're right, you're going from private to public. It's purely a transition from a legal perspective. Our view on this IPO process is you're doing things that ensure that the business is successful. As it happens, the private to public transition is common at that rough size. And so it's not necessarily the going public part that is the driver. It's about how do we take that business from two or 300 million revenue to a billion. And these are the types of things that we think you need to achieve that. And as it happens, you're changing from a private to a public setting. There are some nuances around that. Obviously, as an as a public company, you have a whole raft of things with shareholders. You need to be very good at communicating, very clear around communication with shareholders. So there are there are things like that that are nice to have. But our experience with that is a great CEO, a great management team. They can pick that up reasonably quickly. So it's not having you don't necessarily need that experience as a public company CEO or CFO to achieve that, uh, to be successful in the public setting. And I think Baby Bunting is a great example. Matt is awesome. Uh, Darren uh, is, is awesome. And neither of those had public company experience as CEO and CFO. So they picked it up and ran with it and have done an amazing job as a public company. One other element that TDM uh, puts a lot of emphasis on, and I'd be remiss if I didn't give Ed Cowan a shout out, who we had on the podcast earlier and spoke a lot about people and culture and the importance of that and the importance of that for TDM when they invest in a company. How do you think about people and culture when it comes to transitioning uh, and going through an IPO is that, I mean, it's a tough, uh, tough thing to define at the best of times. How does TDM as an outside investor sort of assess where that's at and then decide if then that needs to be a focus of change? I would say once again, you know, we think this is good process for, for any company of that size and scale, whether private or public, but in order to be successful in the public setting, you want to make sure that you, you're humming and that the business is humming. And and for the business to be humming, you need um, the right people and culture at that particular point in time. So there are a number of ways to measure that. You know, we're obviously big fans of engagement surveys and, and using tools like Culture Amp to ensure that 
you know, from that you're getting, you, you have very high engagement, you know, you've got the right people, you know, that the business from a people perspective and a people and culture perspective is, is humming. And obviously that's something that we think is very important to ensure that as you go into that public setting, you've got that right, because you don't want to be doing mass overhauls of management teams, for example, or even a significant portion of your, of your team in the public setting. You want to do that behind closed doors. You want to make sure you've got those people, as we say, we, we like to say 90% of the people on the bus are the right people. And you want to do that going into that process. I mean, another important part of that, which we haven't touched on is you want to make sure you've got the right incentives. So we're big fans of having the right long-term incentive programs for your people. And so we spend a lot of time on that, making sure you've got the right structures around long-term incentives, aligning both management team and the rest of the team with the shareholders leading into an IPO process. Tom, one of the other aspects that you often hear about private companies not wanting to go public is all of the governance and financial reporting that comes with it and all the hoo-ha of talking to shareholders and whatnot. How do you help prepare companies for that part of the process, particularly that sort of financial reporting lens? Yeah, I mean, we hear that quite a bit. And, and I suppose we run our private company boards and, and want our private company boards to operate exactly the, the way they do in the, in the public setting. So we actually say for all our private companies, we want a public company quality board behaving like a public company in the private setting for those two years prior so that they're practicing becoming a public company. We actually see it's the right thing for the business to get the best possible outcome. So we struggle with that concept. We actually think it's important to have governance around successful businesses. And, you know, it's something that we're actually quite passionate about. We also think that having five, six, seven A-grade non-executive directors is highly additive to the business. You actually get better outcomes by having that quality board in place. And so we don't see it as a a negative, a, you know, process-driven issue, we actually see it as we've got five, six, seven highly intelligent commercial people adding value that are passionate about the business, are aligned ideally with with equity as well, and just trying to help that business grow the fastest it can. In terms of the financial reporting, once again, you know, we actually want our private companies to behave in a very similar fashion as they would in public. And so that's just good rigor that we like to bring to our companies. And we don't see that as a negative at all, in fact. So very simple things. We want our companies audited and completing their annual accounts six weeks post year end. We think it's the right thing to do to to get that, you know, then you're humming. The systems and processes are right. You've got the right ERP system. You've got the right people in finance when you can deliver on that. And, and yes, you've also got to do that in the public setting as well. But we, we want that regardless. And we just see it as, a, as we want all our businesses behaving that way. So if you take a sort of step back and look at investing sort of thesis of TDM, and you spoke about that long-term approach, is that why it is important for you to make sure this process is sort of a 24-month and not just uh, let's get this done in three months and rock and roll in the markets? I think that is a very critical point. So we're not looking to an IPO to exit, to maximize price and sail off into the sunset. We just see it as the next stage in evolution of the business. And in fact, one of the main reasons we look to an IPO is that so all the employees in the executive team actually 
get value for their equity and can be part owners in the business. That's really our key driver of a business going going to IPO for us. And so we still want to remain a long-term shareholder in that business. And in fact, if you look at Pacific Smiles and Taro, we own more businesses, uh, we own a, a higher percentage of that business today than we did prior to IPO. Hmm. So it's not about us selling and moving on. It's about the next stage and evolution of the business for us. And ideally, we remain a shareholder for a very long time in, in, into the future. It's, it's not an exit event for us. So you're not private equity? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think, look, everyone has their own way of um, and own constraints. Obviously, private equity have a constraint around fun life. We actually wanted to make sure when we set up our business, we didn't have that constraint. Yeah. And, and that's really the key driver of private equity is that they have a fun life where they have to return money to mm. their shareholders and that drives a certain behaviour. We actually, when we first set up 15 years ago, went out of our way to ensure that we didn't have that. So we didn't have that constraint and that that allows us to own businesses for long term. And so, in fact, one of our businesses we've owned for 15 years and I think at last count, 40% of our portfolio we've owned for between seven and 15 years. So we're, and I think it's a key foundation in terms of what we, when we set up TDM, what we wanted to do, we want to be a business owner and we want to be a business owner and back those teams for a very long period of time to compound our capital at high rates. And I think that's a, a very important differentiation to what we do and to ensure that the businesses get the best possible outcome. I love that philosophy. We hear it so many times from so many different investors, you know, thinking like a business owner, thinking long-term, and it feels like, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in the short-term movements in the market and all of that. And I guess your the success of your fund is testament to the logic and the, the reason why you stick to those philosophies. I mean, it's common sense in our view. Sadly, I don't think that many people actually stick mm. with that. And that emotional stability is very important to, and, and that change of mindset. I'm a business owner. Businesses actually don't change in value every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just that you happen to have a, a screen in front of you that, you know, flicks red or green on a given day, but that's actually not is what is happening in reality. And I think that's all, if you were to walk into the TDM office, no one has a screen open. It's a very different. It's a nice office. Must admit, great views. So there are no no flashing lights. In fact, you know, we might we'll have a client ring up and they might ask what's happening on the market today, and we've got absolutely no idea. It's just it's a very different mindset, and very hard to do when you have monthly reporting requirements. Uh, fortunately, we don't have that that issue. So if we tie together a lot of the minus 24 to minus six month period, I guess you could sum it up by sort of getting your house in order, like getting the right team in place, getting the right culture in place, getting the financial reporting in place, getting the right systems in place, getting everything ready for your next stage of growth. We've mentioned some of the companies that you took through that period and onto a successful IPO Baby Bunting, Pacific Smiles, Tyro, you know, without giving away anything that's, you know, proprietary or anything um, that you can't talk about, were there any sort of big events or key learnings or anything that you thought was, you know, a big milestone for those companies in that period on their journey? We, we talk about the 24-month period. Sometimes it's longer. Like we've got to be a little bit careful. It's not, mm. it's not that cookie cutter. And maybe I pick on Baby Bunting. 
you know, you're, you're a big fan, so <laughs> it's an easy one. That was a longer journey than, than two years. We became the largest shareholder, I'm going to forget the date, somewhere I think in 2011-12. The business didn't IPO to 2015. And there was a lot of work that happened between, let's call it 2011 to 2015. We found Matt and found an awesome CEO that has done an amazing job. That was very important. That business was a family business that didn't have that CEO to go to the next level. So Matt became very important in, in terms of recruiting him. We recruited the entire board. We recruited Darren, uh, the CFO, so we made sure we had that right team. The business in 2009-10 didn't have an online presence at all. So uh, we spent a, a lot of time helping the business refine its online strategy and really going deep there. We spent a lot of time with the team uh, providing international insights around what's happening with Amazon around the world and, and some of the leaders that we looked to, like Bye Bye Baby in the US and what they were doing. And then, you know, we wanted to make sure, you know, if you talk about the the how it works in practice, you know, we wanted to make sure Baby Bunny had real-time sales, real-time gross margin numbers, weekly wages, so that the the store managers and the people at head office were, were talking profitability on a weekly basis. They had that real-time information and it's amazing what that does to performance. Mm. And mm. so the business had all the ingredients for success. It had an awesome store format and was doing many things that, that people weren't doing in terms of its competitors, but it needed to really go to that next stage. And, and it was that three or four year period where by the time it got to IPO, you know, it was a high performing team delivering on its results and, and had all the right systems to take it to the next level. So it's not always a two year process, there's, but there's no big event either. It's not, mm. you know, it, it's a every, it's a daily grind, I'd, I'd call it. Like do you, do you find that the founders are sort of itching to get going and you're having to hold not, back a little? Not really. Look, founders understand or CEOs understand, uh, they understand what it takes to build a business. I understand business is a daily grind. And so... I think, you know, every great CEO or founder understands and knows when, when they're ready. I think I, I would say where you see rushed IPOs, it's normally driven by the shareholders and that's where the problem arises. So you'll see there's been some more recent IPOs where maybe the CEO's only been in for a month or two. That's got nothing to do with what the CEO wants. That's got to do with the shareholders wanting an outcome. Yeah. And, the, and they're... There's some of the red flags that we look out for when we're a public, when we're looking to invest in the public setting. Yeah. So if we move to the next period in the IPO process, and this I imagine is where things move a lot quicker and there's a lot more external forces coming, you know, and, and speaking to the company and, and really getting, getting ready to go public. That minus six month to go live process there's a bunch of things, you know, roadshows, prospectus, all of that stuff. So I guess if we start general and get specific, can you tell us how you approach that period of pre-IPO with a company? So it's sort of the investment banker's heaven at that, that point. So that's <laughs> Not they, your heaven, Tom. Yeah, or? <laughs> <laughs> so, and the lawyers. That's right, that's right. Let's not forget them. So I mean, it, it really becomes process-driven at that point. So it's it's... Unfortunately for a management team, they're working, we always say that you're working two jobs. You've got the IPO process by day and you're running the business by night. So there's a lot of work from a due diligence perspective that lawyers and 
you know, friends at ASIC require that needs to get done. Um, and that's, it's really, that process is driven by the investment banks and, and the lawyers, and it's really a, a process. Mm. There are obviously various points of sensitivities that we have. We want to make sure our companies are presenting well. We want to make sure the, the management team, you know, answer the questions in, in the appropriate way. We're obviously very sensitive to pricing. We want our businesses priced for success. Um, because we're going to remain shareholders for a very long period of time. So we want to make sure the banks are aligned with that, that when we deliver an IPO, it's going to be successful. Just on that, what, what does priced for success mean to you? It means that we're not pricing for an exit. So if you're looking to sell either a significant portion or the majority of your shares, you're looking to maximize mm. price. And so you'll push those incoming investors as far as possible to maximize your outcome. We're not trying to do that. You'll see most often, or, or certainly so far, we will ideally sell no shares. Sometimes we'll sell a small amount of shares to facilitate liquidity. And the key for us is we want the institutions coming in to have a successful day, so to speak, in terms of that IPO day that they've bought shares and things have gone well and it's gone up and that that will pay off in, in the future. When you have happy shareholders, that ensures that it takes a lot of pressure off the company, a lot of pressure off management, because you don't want those shareholders day one to be underwater. No one likes losing money. And that, that creates a lot of pressure when, when people start losing money. What about on the other side, though, if you, know, you see over in the US markets, particularly the big tech stocks that come on an IPO and they pop 40% and then they come down. Is that to you a successful IPO if your stock pops 40% or is that a mispricing? Yeah, there's a fine line. It's a, it's a very hard thing to do. And I think there's been a lot made of that, obviously. But it's interesting, particularly if you look at the US technology stocks, they're often $100 million raises, for example, in a two, three, four, five billion dollar business. It's a small proportion of free float that's actually trading. And so you get a lot of demand for these high quality businesses and there's a small available pot and, and that can drive some very significant day one outcomes. We, we, we sort of think about it, if you were to paint the, it's impossible to control, if you were to paint the perfect picture, we're looking for somewhere between 10, 15, 25% day one performance that makes everyone happy. Everyone's quite excited by that. But you get, unfortunately, you can't say that's exactly what's going to happen because it just doesn't play out that way. But, you know, I think if you're getting a 50 to 100% pop, you have mispriced it. But I would say if, if you're only selling a small proportion, it's not the end of the world if that happens. I'd much prefer that than to be down 10 or 20 and have all the pressure that that, that puts on the management team. So I would lean towards more positive than running the risk of, of having a, a negative experience. Really basic question for everyone out there. Who actually prices it? Good question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's a combination of the company and the investment banks. Right. And and that's obviously the, I mean, in terms of when I say the investment banks, that's obviously driven by the demand coming in from the institutions. And so it's a, it's a balancing act. Obviously, the company is taking advice from the investment banks. We typically have a very strong view about price. Mm -hmm. For many months leading in, in fact, I think for baby bunting, if I pick on that one again, we told the investment bank six months prior to IPO, this is where we think it would be a fair price. It ended up being 
um, there was significant demand for the IPO. It was well loved at the time of IPO. There was massive demand. And, you know, we made the decision whilst we could have potentially increased price that that wasn't the right thing to do. And we went ahead at the, actually the price that we suggested many months prior because we thought that was the right thing to do. So does that create tension somewhat between company and, and bank during that process? It can. Well, it can. So once again, depending on your shareholders, depending on your board and depending on what you're trying to achieve, there mm. can be tension there. I would say it's rare for us to have tension because we care about the next five to 10 years, yeah. not the first day. So we're going to price it and go in on the base that we want it to be successful. So that takes attention out. Mm. If you're pushing for a price maximization event, you'll have a lot of tension. Is that because the investment banks want it lower so they can sell the shares? Well, it makes it easier. Yeah. They also want their clients, which happens to be both the company and the incoming shareholders, they want them to have success as well. So they're, I mean, the investment banks are in a tricky situation from that perspective. And that's just a fine line. But once again, I, I would say with our IPOs, there's been close to no tension around price because we've wanted we've wanted successful IPOs. So it tends to be a happy experience for everyone. Nice. So there's a number of other events that happen in that six-month period. The Investor Roadshow is obviously often spoken about, but for retail investors, unfortunately, at least to this point, we don't have access to... Uh, to see the companies present, that's mainly an institutional-focused thing. The prospectus is something that anyone can read and, um, you know, for retail investors, often it's probably the best insight we get into how the company thinks about itself and its future plans. I imagine there's a lot of work that goes into forecasting the future and agreeing on a forecast for the future that everyone can get on board with. What's the process like that, trying to predict the future, put it on paper and then send it out to the world? Just make it look as rosy as possible, yeah. right? <laughs> well, every word is verified, yeah. so let's just say it's painful. Okay. Um, the, the, the actual process is very, very painful and, and literally every word is underlined and verified. As a, that's a sort of uh, something that is, is not that enjoyable. But in terms of, I mean, you're right, it's very, unfortunately, in Australia, it's very hard for retail investors to see them present. I would, however, recommend in the US, Retail Roadshow, awesome. You can actually, there are half an hour presentations of management teams on Retail Roadshow for US IPOs. Is that, a, is that a website? That is a website, Great. free of charge. So there's a, for those that are willing to invest internationally, I yeah. would highly recommend. Love to bring that to Australia um, because we're, I mean, we're a big fan of equality and transparency yeah. and think it, it's actually the right thing to do. So not here yet, but hopefully one day. Yeah, I would love, Maybe that's love to be part of the process. Equity mates add on, we can uh, explore. Mm, there we <laughs> Don't go. give away. We go. Don't give yeah. away. <laughs> We're going to this bit on the, the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, and in terms of the prospectus, uh, I mean, it is, it's actually important. It's not just rosy. You, you really want a prospectus to to give a very clear understanding to everyone. What is that competitive advantage of the business and what are the future prospects? And, and ideally, what we actually do is a little test. We actually give someone in the team the prospectus, this is prior to lodgement, and say, go build a model. And based on that, how does your model that you build just on the prospectus, you know nothing but that information in the prospectus, how does that compare to our internal five-year forecast? And ideally... They're roughly the same. Mm. If we've done, if we've achieved that, 
with with now the perspective okay so is the approach very much to try and replicate what your internal forecast rather than going for like an under promise and over deliver sort of model well I'd, look i think everyone wants to to beat their perspective so i'm i'm talking in a range but you want it to be broadly in a range and you wouldn't want it to be over yeah so yeah so yeah, you don't yeah, want yeah. it to be over <laughs> But, you know, if it's directionally in line with your five-year model, that's a great outcome. It means a retail investor that does the work or an institution that does the work gets roughly to the same answer. Mm. So, Tom, before we move to some actionable insights to close out this episode, once you've taken the company through this journey and they've hit the markets, they're a public company, where does your involvement then go from there? So, it does depend on the company. So, we're... Still on the board of Tara, we're still on the board of Pacific Smiles. Pacific Smiles actually listened in 2014. So there are two examples. Baby Bunting, we decided to exit our, our position a, a couple of years after IPO. It was obviously a super successful investment for, for us. We love the business, we love the management team, but we felt the time was right at that particular point in time. So at the moment, we have no involvement with baby bunting. So it really does depend on the situation. Mm. For those that where we remain an investor and a board member, we remain active trying to help that business achieve the best it can achieve as we did in the private setting. So really, there's no difference. Where we remain involved, there can be a situation where we, for example, we don't have one at the moment, but where we're not on the board, we remain an investor, even though we were on the board prior to, to go into IPO and we remain a long-term supportive shareholder. That is an important role for us to play. Mm. Tom, as Bryce alluded to, we want to get to some actionable insights, uh, some things that our listeners and Bryce and I can take away and uh, really apply to how we think about IPOs. And I guess you've stepped through a perfect IPO process, the, the textbook process that TDM thinks companies should go through to be ready for an IPO. How can someone like Bryce or I who can't, you know, see what you're doing at TDM or we can't speak to company founders and company executives themselves, how can we from the outside looking in, look at a company and assess whether they've taken the steps and they are ready or they're rushing the process? It's a great question. <laughs> it's a little bit tricky. It's a big question. It's a, it's a little bit tricky. We obviously have some experience in that in terms of we are happy to invest in businesses at IPO or or soon after IPO. And so we're looking for the same things that you would be looking for as you read a perspective. So what are the, the red flags, so to speak, that we would be looking for if we were coming into an IPO? That may not necessarily be an issue, but it's just something to watch out for. So if you think about the people, let's think about that when did the board, if you go down through the board, when did they join the board? Did they join one, two or three months ago or did they join two, five or ten years ago? And so they've been part of that process. What equity do they own of the business? So that, are they there because they passionately believe in the business? If they passionately believe, often they will have significant equity in the business. So that, that, from a board perspective, that, that tells you was it run as a proper functioning board for many years prior to IPO? Same with management team. When did they join and how much equity do, do they own? Did they join one or two months? Did the CEO join one or two months ago? Red flag. Doesn't mean it will be a bad business, mm -hmm. but you, it's just obviously you, you go, well, well, that seems a little bit strange. If you then go through the sort of the systems uh, to make, you know, has the business got a humming back office 
well, do they talk about the systems and the perspectives? And and when when you look at those systems, are they best of breed systems? Are they using best of breed technology? Do they talk about their people and culture in the perspectives? Some will give engagement scores for you know for their for their people. So how developed are they, and are they willing to talk about it? If they're willing to talk about that, I would say that's a good sign. If they're not, it doesn't. Once again, it doesn't mean it's a bad company, but it's just something to watch out for in the future. I would say something else just from a people and culture perspective, always have a look at Glassdoor. Mm. Not so big here in Australia, mm. but if you're investing overseas, Glassdoor will give you a great run through of where they are from people and culture. You've got to be a little bit careful. Mm. Can't believe everything you read. Yeah. Uh, but that is a way that we or a tool we use as an external investor as to assess where people are at from a people and culture perspective. So there are some tips and hints, so to speak. Nice. Are there any other sort of major red flags outside of your sort of your process that a retail investor could identify and sort of, you know, maybe think twice about participating in an IPO? Well, I'd say, I mean, we typically don't invest in these businesses. Businesses that are coming together for an IPO, so where you've got one, two, three businesses merging at an IPO to then become a public company, uh, the alarm bells ring pretty hard at that point for us, uh, but that's certainly uh, something that I think people should be looking out for. Mm. I mean, we're big fans of organic growth rather than acquisition growth. So, something you know, how acquisitive has that business been? Obviously, in a perspective, say pro forma, all that out. So, what you know, you can sort of get the pretty shiny picture. You got to be a little bit careful, and so w- we would be very wary of that, and certainly. Something I'd be recommending any retail investor to to look out for as part of their process. But you know, just because you might miss out on day one, and and uh, you know, we still think it's a great opportunity to find great businesses. Just just make sure you do the work prior to investing. What about the who is actually selling the IPO side? Is that something that needs to be considered? Yeah, no, it is. Sorry, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably put that at number one, actually. (laughs) Uh, So price maximization. So, you know, it it comes to how how big a proportion, I can't believe I missed that one, Uh, how big a proportion, uh, you know, are those major shareholders selling? If they're treating it as a price maximization event, you know, back in the day, many years ago, there were people that would sell 100% of their shares at IPO, and they'd get away with it. That's a rare occurrence, so you won't see that very often. Institutions won't put up with that anymore. But certainly, you know, significant portions be wary. Doesn't mean it's going to be a bad IPO. They may have other reasons to be doing that, other pressures, but just something to be to be careful of. Obviously, ideally, you have people either not selling or or buying mm. would even be better. Mm. Do you think about the founder in the same way? Like, is there a sort of minimum amount of equity you would want the founder to hold or is it mainly the big shareholders that you're looking at? It's an interesting one. We are actually happy for founders to sell some shares. Most people will actually screw up their face and and think that's a bit strange. We think it's reasonable for founders that put 5, 10, 15, 20 years of hard work, they've put their house on the line, they've got the personal guarantee. They've earned the right to sell some shares. Now, having said that, we want them to remain substantial shareholders and we want them to to obviously have a substantial portion of their assets in the business to keep pushing that business to achieve everything it should be achieving. But 
we have no problem with founders selling some shares. They, they deserve it at the end of the day. Mm. And I would say that's our view. I'd say that's actually not a widely held view. Most institutions hate when founders sell shares. We think that's wrong. As long as they remain significant shareholders and a, a significant portion of their wealth, we're, we're very happy. Mm. I've got one more question about IPOs before we wrap, and it's not really related to Australia, but a trend that you are seeing out of America is uh, special purpose acquisition I knew companies. you were going to race. And <laughs> I, I'm just interested to get your personal thoughts on it because I don't really know how to think about it, but it feels like every man and his dog right now is setting up a SPAC and uh, IPOing it and then acquiring a company. How do you think about that trend? Do you think it will come to Australia? I don't know. It, it, I mean, it's reasonably new. It's obviously been very popular in the last six months. It, it seems like a SPAC a day yeah. uh, at, at the moment. And direct listing is another trend. I know slightly not to what you asked, but I'd say direct listings is pretty interesting mm-hmm. to us for those companies of size and scale that have significant number of shareholders already. It's actually a fair, a very fair process to go through. So we we can definitely see the validity of a direct listing. The SPACs, I would say, we're still working through exactly how <laughs> that plays out. Yeah. So I think I think you'll see, and we're we're seeing quite a few SPACs, but actually now you know where companies are effectively backdooring through them now in the US. I think let's wait and see what that looks like. I think the jury's out for the moment. Let's, let's see. We'll have to sorry, get you back on help. and have a full conversation yeah, about sorry, it at I some can't point. Help. <laughs> so Tom, final question. How do retail investors actually get involved in IPOs? It's one of those things that we always unfortunately mm. seem to be like third hand sort of information. It's not until it all happens and maybe that's just how things are at the moment. But yeah, what's your view on that? Yeah, look, it's challenging. And so at the moment, really the only way, and we'd love this to change, but at the moment, the only way is to be a retail client of the broker that is doing the IPO. Mm. And so at that point in time, you can participate. But yes, there's a 5, 10, 15%, maybe a 20% day one performance. That isn't the game. Mm. So yes, that's nice. That makes everyone feel great. The game is over the next five to 10 years. And so are you picking the right management team with the right business driving and getting the right outcomes on a five to 10 year view, that day one outcome is sort of irrelevant. So you can buy day one and there are many examples. Back in the day, we bought shares in JB Hi-Fi day one, super successful investment. Yes, it went up. I can't remember the exact number, 25, 30% day one, but you know, look at what it did in the 10 years post. So it's the same with baby bunting. There are many, many, many examples. I'd, I, I can see why people are disappointed with that. I, I, I would just say, hopefully that changes one day, but don't not invest if you find the right business and management team because you've missed out on that first 20%. Mm. Nice. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure walking through the IPO process. To everyone in the Equimates community, stay tuned because we've got an exciting episode to follow this where we're going to be walking through a bit of a real life example with a CEO of one of Australia's most well-known companies who is considering an IPO. So stay tuned for that and we'll be walking through that with Tom. Now, if you have really enjoyed listening to what Tom has had to say today as well, there is a whole bunch of further information 
available at the TDM website around the IPO process, as well as a bunch of other awesome resources, everything from case studies on a number of their investments, some blogs around you know people and culture and what they look for, and also the Scaling Up podcast, which is all lessons from the world's best CEO and founders. Head to tdmgrowthpartners.com to sign up to their quarterly email. Perhaps the second best email in town behind, <laughs> behind Equinomate's Thought we'll, Starters. We'll say second best email and second best podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly a phenomenal resource for uh, sort of every sort of investor. Head there and, and sign up and that they'll send you a quarterly email as well as all those awesome resources. But Tom, thank you for your time. We're looking forward to the next episode. I appreciate it. Loved it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.